0: Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. I got to sit down with director Katrina McLaughlin on a preview morning of Marina Carr's Raftery's Hill. Within this conversation, Katrina talks with me about the complicated animal that is family at the heart of her production. The scope of humanity, of victims, of monsters, of forgiveness and hope. We talk of poetry, of expectation and the delicate art of the rural ham sandwich. Katrina goes on to discuss generic terminology and how language can distance us from the reality of what is happening now to women and their bodies. She talks of the complex contexts in which violence and abuse occurs, the terms of survival and the blind eye of hidden Ireland. We talk of headlines, of hashtags and the epic truth that we all know when things aren't right. This is our reality. This is happening. This is now. Enjoy this podcast. Welcome, Katrina McLaughlin, you are associate director here at the Abbey Theatre. I somewhat understand the job title, but can you tell us a little bit about what the role involves?
1: Um, I think it's it's quite varied, which is why I love it so much. Um, I do a whole load of different things. I work with scripts, sometimes with new writers, Um, a little bit of workshopping on scripts. Uh, I direct plays. that uh, the theatre wants to put on Uh, in this case with on Hill I was asked to uh, suggest something I wanted to do so I asked if I could do (laughs) on Hill and they let me so sometimes it's not only plays that I'm sort of asked to do I can have an input on what they are which is the best part about it and then I work with design students in Sligo Um, there's a designer every year who gets a bursary to be part of the design department here and uh, lots of bits and pieces, uh, events that they need me to go to and represent the theatre. I do that. Uh, I've been to London to the embassy as the helping with putting together some entertainment. So different, loads of different things, whatever the directors need and whenever they need an artistic representative, they can ask me to go and do whatever
0: so you got to choose um or you you got you were asked to choose a play that you would like to direct and on Raftery's Hill was that
1: yeah yeah well what actually happened is a slot came up and I had said I wanted to work on the main stage because I hadn't done that and Graham said well give me a couple of options so I gave him a list of options of which on Raftery's Hill was top of my list and then he asked me to put together a kind of I Document on why on Raftery's Hill which I did and he
0: decided to go for that and can you reveal why on Raftery's Hill
1: uh, yeah I can I think it's a really specific time in Ireland at the moment I think in the sort of context of the Me Too movement or whatever you want whatever it's called the kind of Um, I suppose, opening up of things that have happened, people working in our industry and living in our society and particularly in Ireland at the moment when we're still in a situation where women still don't own the right to their own bodies. I felt it's really important to look at something that, you know, we don't want to actually acknowledge. It's very easy to talk about these things and use a lot of words around them, but there are still people today living in situations that are unacceptable. And until we know the scope and the detail and the facts of those things, we're not going to get rid of it. And on Rafter's Hills talks about a very particular kind of abuse, but I don't think it's as unusual as some of us would like to think.
0: It has been 18 or so years since it was written. Yeah. Were, had you seen the Druid um, Royal Court production? No. No, I've, I've never seen it.
1: In fact, I've never seen On Raftery's Hill anywhere. Um, I read it years ago. I think, uh, regardless of the subject matter, I think it's an extraordinary play. It is so tight. It's so smart. It's so much about the human condition and human nature and um, the darkest sides of that. And I think that it's about family and I'm really interested in anything that's about family at, on any level. Um, and of course you know it's Marina Carr so it's referential of the Greeks and, and myth and it's got an epic quality and I've always loved the play um, for the scope of humanity that it expresses. Does that make sense? Do you yep. know what I mean? Yep. It's, a, it's, it's an unapologetically looking at the human animal. I suppose. And I th- and I love that. Um, and sometimes we don't like to look at that. And I think if we don't look at it, we'll never know it and we'll never move forward. And we won't evolve as a society unless We acknowledge the worst and the best of ourselves. That's
0: why I picked it. <laughs> Might get into the actual content of the piece in a bit. Um, can I ask you then? So you read it years ago yeah. and and then when you're invited to direct it, when you're reading it the first and second time, where does your mind wander to when you're, I suppose, given the task of 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 putting it on the main stage? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know,
1: it's a it's a, I suppose it goes to how do these things happen because they're inconceivable. How these kind of things happen from the outside, it's inconceivable to think that somebody could live in an abusive situation for their whole life and accept it at, at the moment. And I think the acceptance of it and the living with it is a really complicated issue that we don't fully understand. It's not black and white at all. Uh, there's a whole load of different things at play. So I suppose what I started thinking about is what, what are the contexts in which these things can happen? And I'm from Donegal, and it's a very rural part of the country. And one of the things that I'm constantly fascinated with is how little people understand the reality of rural isolation in this country. There's whole parts of this country that don't have decent Wi-Fi. Where I come from, there's no public bus service. You can get a bus out. There are people who live in rural parts of this country where they can get to a town once a day on a bus, but they can't get home. Their job opportunities are limited because of the geography of their country and uh, the geography of their place. And because of lack of public transport and money. And, you know, we're sitting in Ireland is recovering, apparently. Well, it's recovering in Dublin. It's not recovering anywhere else.
0: Well, where my mind wanders when you speak of that, I'm thinking that when I was... And I'm thinking of the year two thousand when this came out say first, mm-hmm. and it was kind of exposed to air back then, we were a different nation we were about to you know get into all the glam of the of the Celtic tiger, I suppose, but we'd already all those abuses were already up for were already out there from the mid nineties on but the thing about it is is that like we i, I and I was thinking oh. Oh, light was shed on dark corners. It was a hidden Ireland. But you know what? It actually wasn't a hidden Ireland. Like no. it, someone knew something all the time.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And <laughs> that's that's the most shocking part. And that's part of the reason why this play is really important to do now. Because we all know when things aren't right. We all knew girls at school that, you know, weren't happy or weren't being looked after or weren't... Um, getting enough food or weren't obviously getting enough clean clothes or things like that very few people did anything about that because you didn't interfere in a family you don't interfere in someone else's family it's such a strong thing in ireland that you do not you you barely even acknowledge or mention things that happen inside someone else's family so it's very hard to break that thinking to a point where you're going into somebody and going is everything in here okay? Are you okay? <laughs> you know, we just don't do it. And I think there's a big culture in Ireland of turning our back and, you know, you don't wash your dirty linen in public and you don't acknowledge anyone else's dirty linen and you turn around and pretend you don't see it. So I think that's part of our um, Irishness that I don't particularly like. And I think this play deals with that really well.
0: I mean, it's, it's been 20 years and mm. I just... And I, I have to say, I don't think anything has changed. Mm. The only thing is I, I, I this is a question for you. are can we still be shocked by it? I was sitting in the auditorium there um on, on Saturday night with some tourists who didn't, I suppose know what it meant when you bought a ticket for a marina car show. So I was asking them, and they said, oh no, you know we had we were told it had you know some distressing scenes. And then at the interval, I kind of was like, I felt this kind of duty of care, you know, to kind of see how they were. And and the lady who was part of an Australian Irish couple had said that these stories are everywhere. Stories are everywhere. There's so much of a, of that out there. And I did actually kind of had to just have a note to myself, going, Yeah, are we still? Can we still be shocked by such things? I find it harrowing. Mm. But I spo- do you know what
1: it is? But this is exactly for me part of the problem. Yeah, we're all going to, we all are prepared to say these stories are everywhere, but we're still not doing anything. We're still not going in and taking those people out of those. I mean, you can't, of course, you can't take people out that don't want to come. But if for some reason we are, it's not we're exposing them, but we're almost accepting them. And I think we can accept them in some kind of way because we don't fully engage with what we're actually talking about. There's something at the moment that's happening that I find really difficult, which is the language around these issues is separating us from the actions because the language is really confused. And talking in relation to something like the Me Too movement, all like everything is not the same, if you know what I mean. What's happening now is we're using generic terminology to talk about a whole load of different kinds of abuse and bullying and manipulation and it's not all the same and it and until we look really specifically at each different individual incident case and acknowledge the specificity of that we're not going to solve anything because the language is distancing us from the reality of what's actually happening and something about this play for me makes us look at one tiny aspect of the kind of abuse that happens and looks at it in the most beautiful, humane, complicated way where it's not black and white, where sometimes people just need some kind of love, whatever that love is. And sometimes it's not very tasteful. Sometimes it's brutal and violent and horrific. But people need love and they will take it where they can get it. And that's why the situation we're all in is so complicated because there's all different kinds of ways of needing love, needing and seeking approval. And I suppose the situation for me is much deeper and more complex than the language that we're all using to discuss it at the moment and hashtag and I don't think this kind of minimalist version of communication works on this issue. I think it's actually causing more problems. And of course, that's my personal opinion. And of course, the joy of it is that these things are being exposed and brought into the open. But I don't see the next step happening yet. And the next step is what I'm interested in.
0: It is the next step because I was prepared to um, talk to you about, I suppose, the headlines of the newspaper today, because mm. it is this play is so topical and timely. But when I went to look in the newspaper, like the stories that I avoid all the time. Mm. And last week um, it was about the, the foster care situation in Galway. And I didn't want to read it, but my mum handed me the newspaper and I read more about it. And then and when, once you start, you you get into it. And then I was going to go back to it this morning, but it, it wasn't on the front page anymore. No. And and there were no hashtags about it. and And I don't know what page it was on. Yeah, so what... How is it that we're not taking to the streets? We can take to the streets about water charges. Yeah. And I'm complicit in this. But Me how too. <laughs> Yeah. How? What is the next step? What, how do we change it? We talk about it. Yeah. We bring it out to the light. I suppose we have to... I, you know, actually,
1: I honestly believe that people like Marina Carr are how we talk about it because somebody like Marina Carr can look at the worst sides of human nature and alongside it look at the best sides of human nature and tell us that you know humanity is complicated and relationships are complicated and families are complicated and they're um, good, bad, horrific, violent, abusive, loving, glorious, majestic, all in the same moment. And they're not one thing. And we keep trying to make everything one thing. And nothing is one thing. Not even one relationship is one thing. But people like her make us understand that we are part of... or humanity is part of a thousand-year evolution and will keep going in for another thousand years. And it's really interesting. This play is about the fact that this will always happen. This will happen. I think her play says this has been happening since people have been in existence and it will happen for as long as people are in existence. But we don't have to accept it. We can challenge it and we can talk about it and we can identify it for what it is and help people get out of it. But it's going to be around for as long as there's human beings. And that's a horrible, horrible reality. And no hashtag or no conversation or newspaper article will fix that. There's something else needs to fix it. <laughs> Talk to me about hope in this play. The play opens with music, beautiful, extraordinary violin music. You see the best sides of the human spirit at the top of the play and at the end of the play. It's the most beautiful thing. Like, no matter what happens, we are still capable of poetry and art and beauty, and that's why your arts are essential that's why theater is essential and when you experience that in the same room as the artists making the work it's like nothing else on earth we've been doing that for as long as we've been alive as well and i think we have to you know for me that's that the hope the hope of humanity is not just in Marina's play I mean, not just in the characters she writes in her play, but it's in the fact that she writes plays. It's in how she writes plays and it's in the gorgeous, epic truths <laughs> that she writes.
0: Will you talk to me about the the set and the setting and I suppose that shared vision yeah. and how that came about? There's a couple
1: of things about this set. So when I was thinking about how to make this play... um reading it, there's a couple of things in it like woodbine. There's a mention of woodbine cigarettes which stopped being made in the 80s, right? So there's a few things that made this play feel like we could do a sort of 1950s kitchen and there's something about that, you know, that typical Irish kitchen drama and there's something about that kind of um dynamic for me that we can distance ourselves from if you know what I mean so if we're looking at something that looks kind of old fashioned or is set 20 years ago even or 10 years ago we can go that was then that's not now and I didn't want that to happen so we did simple things like we put a microwave in it and a kettle and we opened up the kitchen to have a more modern feel but then we opened up the set also to have a more Um, epic quality, not a a naturalistic, simple kitchen. I wanted um, it to be elemental. I wanted to speak of the world that the play is based in, which is the Midlands, it's, you know... (laughs) It's on Raftery's Hill, it's really funny because we were having a conversation about I've said it kind of in a bog hole, if you know what I mean. And people are saying, but you don't have bog holes up hills. And I was going, go to Donegal. <laughs> we all cut our turf up a hill um, and there's bog holes on hills in Donegal. So for me, it's like the, com- the kind of complicated elements um, of that kind of stifling landscape where things um, don't grow in waterlogged places. Things don't grow in the same way, rather, I should say. Certain things grow, of course. But there's something about the lack of oxygen in, in, in that kind of thing that I found really kind of provocative. And the other thing is there's a lot of references to hairs in the play and hairs are really interesting. The native Irish hare, I, I've become fascinated by, um, but they live in kind of nests. They don't burrow holes under the ground. They live kind of exposed and open in long grass. They make nests type of things. And there was something about that that seemed really, really right to me. The idea that the world was open, you could see into it. People were able to look into the family, but they still didn't go into the family, if you know what I mean, or delve into what was happening. So I suppose in coming up with the design for the set, it was a combination of a nest in a bog hole <laughs> and then wanting to lift it out of naturalism because I wanted to make the acting ultra-naturalistic, so I felt I needed to make the environment a little bit more expressionistic um, because I wanted to... I want the characters to feel very familiar to the audience. I want them to look like your neighbor, your brother, your sister, your father, your son, because that's who these people are. They're not some alien species. They're not monsters that live behind woods. They're all our families and friends and people in our community. And we know that from the very articles you're talking about. So talking to the designer, Joanna Parker is a designer and she's superb. I well, I love her work. Um, and we were talking about the idea that women um have become in our culture and our history so much part of the landscape that they've almost disappeared. So we talked about how do we make the women in this family part of the landscape. So we started using projections in order to sort of initially look at sort of making them as kind of um landscapes. And as we as Joanna was working with them and using paint and uh, using people's faces and profiles to do that. We kind of, she kind of came up with another kind of idea of how these generations of women become part of the landscape, see everything that's happening, turn into the ground and almost to accept the things that are happening them. And from that we kind of developed this beautiful language, not we, I'm saying we, it's completely Joanna, Um, She's created this beautiful filmic projection that that looks at how women are treated and seen historically in Ireland. I think it works really well.
0: It's um, it's it's funny when I we're, we're sitting up here in the control room and we're looking out onto the set. And it's funny when I go home, I think of it as as much more epic. Yeah. And then and then I'm watching it here and it is, you know, a domestic setting. It feels like that this kitchen has been carved out of the landscape. And I think what you've done is that you can almost um, smell the stagnant water. That's yeah. that's always <laughs> filthy. It's never clean water. It's not running water. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rut and the rot and the stench. It is it is the kitchen setting, like all the children and I'll refer to them as children. They break my heart. Mm-hmm. But there's there's a moment in it that just jarred me and, and it was the turning on of the kettle. <laughs> and, and in that moment, um, it's all these small little gestures in that moment. It just brought me back into the kitchen because I realized that that cup of tea will always be made at that counter and will always be brought to that kitchen table. And and they'll eat at that kitchen table. For like for years and decades to come, and things will just keep going in this, uh, you know, in this environment of of just of it being all so normal.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly why it's there. That's why it's in that moment because I had a lot of thoughts around the timing of it because we've a big silence before it where we could have the kettle boiling without disrupting the dialogue. But there was something that I feel really right about it being part of the world, part of the story, the normalness. She's making tea and sandwiches. <laughs> and so I've kept it over the dialogue to make it part of the the world very specifically. That's exactly the idea. I mean, the kitchen design is quite modern looking with a microwave and, you know, The big fridge and the Belfast sink. Yeah, exactly. But then we have a kind of old-fashioned kitchen table that could have been there for centuries, (laughs) like a big old wooden basic kitchen table, which is very chic, I know now, but also is exactly the same one their grannies and great grannies would have had. And they're probably in every turf house and shed around
0: the country. (laughs) And it's interesting about the images. um, They started um, blending and... And at times I forgot about them and I'd and it would be a flicker of an eye and I'd be brought back to it. But they started, um, yeah, becoming the landscape. Yeah, it's funny. The other thing is with the
1: water, you know, there's something interesting. Once you dirty water it, you can never get it clean. Like if you have a bucket of water and you put a dirty finger in it, it's dirty forever. And there's something about this play that I just kept thinking they can't. They have to just use the dirty water because it can never be clean again. And we try and use the water that way as much as possible. Yeah, it's...
0: It feels stagnant to me. Mm.
1: Good. That's the idea. There's no movement in it. It's still water. Yeah.
0: Will you talk to me about the place of humour in this play? Um, Because watching that audience on Saturday night, knowing what was coming, and knowing what had happened in that second half, they're still laughing. I know, isn't that extraordinary? That's some writing, isn't it? They're laughing at the guy
1: who. Well, some directing, too. Oh my God. Like, it's phenomenal to me that the character of Red still gets laughs in the second half. It's, it's, that's right. That's what happens. People come back into their towns having been in prison for horrible crimes and abuses against young girls boys, their own family and they come back into their town and they're back um, they're back doing everything that they they're accepted in a way that I find quite fascinating. I just don't understand I mean and you know, I don't understand it, but at the same time, it's the best part of humanity that allows that to happen. It's the forgiveness. It's people can forgive things, but it's a compli- It's very complicated and I just don't understand
0: it. I couldn't bring myself to laugh. No. I, I couldn't bring it. I just couldn't do it. And then when you talk about humanity, there is a standard of humanity in this play. And I can't forgive some of the, I can't forgive the characters and I can't forgive their inaction. But it's utterly human. Mm, Completely. It really is.
1: And you know what? We all accept things we shouldn't accept. And we do it on
0: different levels and to different degrees every day. Um, Do you think the, the perspective or the. The placement of of who the victim is has changed. Say in the last twenty years. Well,
1: actually, that's part of what the reason I wanted to do this production and the way that it's done. I mean, it's not in a very blatant way, but from from my perspective, there, you know, particularly women have been the hunted for very many years in this. You know, not just in this country, everywhere in our society. Women have been hunted and I feel this is a moment where the hunters have now become the hunted and it's about time and we can't not hunt them down and expose them for what they are and then deal with it whatever way we decide but we have to acknowledge it specifically not generally and we have to talk about what exactly is going on in individual cases and we have to deal with it. actually handle it and deal with it. You know something else too which is really interesting. Several people have said to me do we really need to see this play at this moment because of everything we're dealing with because of the hashtag MeToo movement? Do we need to see this kind of violence against women? And I think we have to see this play because this play looks at violence against women in a real human context where nobody's a monster, everybody's a human being, and everybody's a complicated human being. And it's but it's really interesting the kind of reaction that putting a play like this on has has got. So I have to really like much respect to the artistic directors for taking a risk and letting me run with this because it's not a popular choice by any manner or means. They've they've really um done me a massive favor by trusting me with this subject matter and in this way i think that's really important to acknowledge and doing something like this not everybody not many people would be prepared to let this play happen at the moment because they may not understand why this play has to happen at this moment
0: does that make sense it does <laughs> i mean when it was announced last year i i was i was questioning i was questioning it i was thinking did i Want to see this again? Did I want to invite this into, our, you know, my life? And now after seeing it three times, I, I realise how important it is now. Mm. Can I ask you, I think, can I ask you about the casting? You talk yeah. about um, monsters having humanity. And <laughs> when I looked at the, the casting credits, I, um, I questioned them. Yeah. But they are terrifically clever. <laughs> Will you talk about that? Maureen Hughes was the casting
1: director, so she gave, she uh, deserves a lot of the credit. Um, I really wanted Lorcan Cranage to play Red, basically. I just wanted him to play Red because Lorkin is gorgeous, just a gorgeous, lovely man, and we, we work together on two pints and he has a sense of humour and a warmth that I love. But he's also an extraordinary actor. He is an exceptional actor. And when I was thinking about Red, I just couldn't think past him, to be perfectly honest with you. And, you know, of course, we discussed other people. But I kept coming back to Lorcan because Lorcan feels like somebody you would know, somebody you would want to spend time with, somebody you would want to go to the pub with or, you know, have a chat with. And he felt... He actually felt too nice to be Red, but because I knew of his exceptional talent as an actor, I knew he could play Red. So, I mean, I couldn't resist. The last person you would imagine in that role, well, some have said, but you'll never see a better Red than Lorcan Cranich.
0: <laughs> it would have been easier to cast a huge burly brute or something, yeah. and that's not what you get. No. Which turns everything on its head. yeah. And but he's also terrifying. The moment he steps on stage, I'm uneasy. Yeah. But he has. There is a quality. There's a melancholy about him, and um, in those silences, that you're. It's very clear that he's. Uh, I was going to say he's not a total monster, but he is. But he's not. Nobody is. There's no such thing.
1: I don't think. There's people who are who do monstrous things and are capable of inconceivable monstrosity and brutality.
0: But nobody is an absolute monster. Well, that's what this play yeah. brings out. Yeah. It's the cycle of it. This production, is is it is kind of a mass of tiny gestures for me. I get lost in those tiny gestures and everything is so considered and it's captured so well how a character Pulls a chair towards them, or, or how they lean in a silence, or how they fold a piece of bread or smoke. Uh, this whole production seems like an experience to me. You can almost smell the stench of that water. I suppose when I when I see the characters move in the space, I see that some of them it seems like that they're polarized and that with one foot forward, the other one's taken an, um, a a backward step. And there's never feels like there's never a safe distance on that stage. Will you talk to me about? the pacing and how you work in that space and within that space. Right. So
1: there's a couple of things at play there. Um, People in the country function in space in a certain way. They stay in the peripheries inside. People, men come into the house and they'll spend two hours and they'll stand in the margin of the door. It's a really specific thing to come in and sit at a table and have a meal. It's not a no. It's not an easy thing or a normal thing. It's function. If they sit down to eat a meal, it's because they're absolutely starving. There is. It's the only situation in which I no no. Of course, this is general, but I'm talking about men like agricultural men who are out working the land or out hunting for hours. If they come in to eat, they want to eat, and I just really wanted to look at that and what that is. Also, they're not. And now, again, and I'm talking in gross generalisations, but I'm probably thinking about men of my father's generation and my uncles, like my uncles and how they relate to each other. And I suppose I did use that, the neighbours at home. (laughs) There's a lot of gestures in this play that are taken from neighbours at home in Donegal um, in terms of the way they stand or the way they sit or why they sit or when they sit or how they use a space. Um, And we talked a lot about that and played a lot with that. Like we had a really funny situation where um, we were working on the scene where they eat the sort of ham sandwiches. And (laughs) like my dad will come in from he works on it. He has an oyster farm and he would come in and he would literally put the pan loaf on the table the packet of ham, the block of cheese, and he would literally stand and make a sandwich and eat it because he needed fuel. And we do that in the play. But what was really funny the first few times we did it because there was a much more elegant version. (laughs) The actors, one of the actors, um, had a much more elegant version of making a ham sandwich than I thought it should be. So those kind of things um, are very specific
0: how do you draw that without prescribing or, or like, are you that direct? Like, it's funny, I have
1: a, I had a great time with this cast and um, I work in a really specific way. I don't believe in being very direct, but I have a really clear sense of what I want. We would do a lot of improvisation, so we would spend a lot of time researching the text and each moment in the text and talking about it and uh, breaking the text up into little sections and what's happening and where it is and those kind of things and then I would Get them to improvise a scene without the actual words. So I'd be looking for the relationship and the dynamic and this sort of Communication and an emotional communication and how they move and then as we get to sort of know the text better. I might say things like Can you get you know ham and cheese from the fridge and then just by gradually gradually adding things in and adding layers in um, don't cut the sandwich fold it you know <laughs> yeah. things like that we get into a world and when we hit it we all know it's right I had a really special time working with this cast we all have the same sensibility and that doesn't very often happen when you're working with so like seven different actors I think Um, we all have very similar taste in the kind of work that we like and we worked you know they're very generous with each other everybody had the space to explore different options and then as as things became more and more familiar to us and we knew where we were going we started to make things a bit more solid and consistent but it was an absolutely joyous rehearsal period, which is mad considering the subject matter. But I I have rarely laughed so much. And like roaring with laughter, your sense of humour becomes very dark.
0: I was going to ask <laughs> how to keep... Because uh, it seemed that as, as the actors were pouring out of the rehearsal room over the last few weeks, they were always laughing and they were mm. always smiling. And I wondered how you kept the mood light with such dark content.
1: Um, I think... To be honest, everyone in that room took responsibility for that. You know, there was a lot of biscuits <laughs> Um, they all brought in different forms of biscuit. Um, but uh, I think the reason the atmosphere was light is everybody felt they were invested in the project and everybody's voice was equal, which is something that's really important to me, particularly on an ensemble like this. There's no, I don't believe in different hierarchies or people being more important in a context or in a play because they have twice as many lines as somebody else. That doesn't that doesn't work for me. So everybody's voice was heard. Everybody, I feel, felt valued and therefore were prepared to be more generous with everybody, with all of each other. And because of that... I think it was enjoyable. We all really enjoyed it. We worked really hard, but we really enjoyed the work. So when we had a break, we were able to enjoy each other. Do you know what I mean? And I think sometimes, you know, when you make make a company hierarchical, there's not room for people to enjoy each other in the break, you know? <laughs>
0: it's really simple, I think. When I was watching uh, the performance, uh, I kept grappling with the idea that Red was looking for atonement every time he was trying to, you know, buy his way out or Mm. buy a silence. But in actual fact, it wasn't atonement. He really was just trying to buy a silence or own. Yeah. Am I right? That's it. I think that's exactly it. It's
1: Red's character feels like he owns everything in his world. He owns his hill and it's within his gift to give people bits of it and the payment that people have to give him is whatever he demands. And I think that that's not an unusual character in our world. <laughs> Somebody who feels they own everything in the world that they operate in.
0: Um, as Associate Director, the work seems non-stop for you this last year and the range of work is so diverse. It's from Youth Theatre to Opera Briefs to Two Pints Tour to Josephine Kaye. Is there a gear change necessary uh, Does it require a different approach for each of those types of um, projects? Yeah, it's totally different, actually. And it's
1: it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about that lately because something like um, the Youth Theatre, uh, I directed um, a show with the National Youth Theatre this year and half of that job is teaching acting effectively or actor training or helping people understand how to perform. Uh, so, you're doing that while you're directing scenes. Um, something like opera briefs is the same. It's students who aren't used to performing. So, it's, you know, you're kind of trying to help them with the basics as well as direct, um, you know, put it together in some shape. And with new plays, there's always a lot of dramaturgy. So, there's less creative direction you can impose on a production because you have to make sure that you're given the writer the best version of their play that you can and that you're true to their vision of their work so there's a different energy and a different focus. Um, The ideal for me would be to be doing um, some new work and some classics because I feel it's only with a really tight um, tried and tested text that you can play with the production values or play with the world or put a style on it. Or, you know, if it's a first play, you have to give the writer their first, their absolutely, their version of their play.
0: I'm thinking with that kind of, as I said, range of work, you know, you've been working as a director for like over a decade longer. Mm. What does it mean then to work on the Abbey stage? And did you feel, I mean, you're experienced enough clearly you're experiencing enough did you feel a pressure um or an expectation massive
1: <laughs> absolutely massive but that's a little bit self imposed as well because like i've 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 had plays on bigger physical spaces in other you know in america for example but it's not my national theater and I was talking to a friend or actually emailing a friend recently. The first play I saw here was Observe the Sons of Ulster in the 90s. And they sat in the front row of a matinee. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, you know, I want to do that. I want to do that. But what I but what I probably wanted to do at that point was perform. And so... To actually, because I, to how you became a director was inconceivable. Like, no one in my family has, is engaged in theatre. Um, it's not part of our history at all. Um, so, so, what led
0: you to think that, well, you wanted to perform, and mm-hmm. then the steps that took you to becoming a director?
1: Yeah, I think that. I was incredibly shy when I was a kid. I'm the oldest and I was like horrendously shy. And at that time, it, there was fashions like poetry fashions. I don't know, everyone in the country used to do poetry fashions. But despite the fact that I was shy, apparently my mum tells me I would put myself in every single fish. And she said for years she couldn't hear me in the front row. Like I was like running off the stage before I'd said it. But I loved it. And I did the fashions every year all through school, um, loved poetry. And I think, you know, I was trying to figure out what was it? And I think it was being listened to. I think that's what it was. I think it's one, you know, when you're very shy, you don't say anything. You know, So I think thinking about it, it was the only time people listened to me. And I loved it. <laughs> So it must have been pure ego <laughs> I, I, <laughs> that drove me.
0: No. Um. I, I understand that the impulse uh, that brings uh, people to, I suppose, want to act and be actors and actresses. Mm. What's the impulse then uh, that brought you to direct?
1: If I'm really honest, it was completely impatience. I couldn't sit around and wait for jobs, Hopes. And I started um, working with the youth theatre in Donegal, When I was at the Gaiety School, I used to run a youth theatre at the same time in Donegal. So I'd go up to Cairndonagh, up to any show and run a youth theatre at the weekend. They were literally, they didn't know it at the time. They were literally three months behind me. (laughs) Whatever I was learning during the week I was teaching at the weekend. Um, So running a youth theatre like that sort of, Gave me a kind of a taste for it, and then we did exchanges with a company, a theatre company, youth theatre company in Derry, and then they asked me to direct Romeo and
0: Juliet, and then that was it. Like I loved that. And did you ever miss uh, the performing aspect, or as a director, do you get that fulfilment?
1: Well, I was very slow to let go of the acting, to be honest with you, for years. And I was like, no, I'm really an actor. I'm only directing in the meantime. Um, And then it kind of occurred to me that actually I was I was probably more of a director. There's a certain part of yourself you have to give um, away when you're an actor. And I discovered that at a certain point that I couldn't do that. And I think that it's easier to do it as a director because it's not so obvious. (laughs) What does that mean? Um, I think that you have to use every single thing in you as a to be an excellent actor. You have to use the you know everything that is that you can, like everything that has happened to you, everything that you know, everything that you've seen, everything that you've read. You have to be prepared to give it up to be an excellent actor, whatever it is, you know.
0: Isn't it funny? I, I, this is kind of off the cuff, but isn't it funny? You never really expect your plumber to be excellent, <laughs> isn't it? And yet we have this, like, you yeah. know, superhuman standard for actors that I find that curious. It's true, you're right. But, you know, if you want to do
1: something, well, there's a couple of things. If you want to be an actor or work in a theatre, you're not doing it for the money or you're not doing it for another lifestyle, you're doing it it is the life, it is the lifestyle and you're not doing it to have a great house or lovely holidays so I think that when you decide to become an actor or a, in the arts at all, I think actually musician or painter whatever dancer, you want to be doing it at a, a certain standard or at a certain level, whatever your personal idea is so I would look at people like Philip Seymour Hoffman and go, that's what an actor is. And if you can't do that, then why bother? <laughs> you know, he gave up so he gave up his whole life, actually, to be who he was and capable of what he could portray on screen, on stage. And, you know, that's an actor. Of course, he was a great director too. damn him. He could do it all
0: <laughs> um, I'm going to I'm conscious of time. So I'm going to be wrapping up soon. But in in that same vein, was uh, What was the first production you saw? What was the first piece of theatre you saw? But also that changed how you saw theatre, but also changed your world view? It was
1: Carmen by Nietzsche, And it changed everything. Changed. I didn't know theatre could be like that. It was mind-boggling and extraordinary and heartbreaking. And... It was a it was an experience, and it was strange and funny and so skillful, like they were like acrobats, and I saw it in Derry and it moved around. It was in two different places: one half in one place, and another half in another. One part was completely lit by candles, and there was a man going around relighting candles all the way through. That was his entire function in the play, or in the perform- production. Um and it was more of a, it wasn't a full opera version i'm i'm not entirely sure what they did but it just blew my mind and i and then i knew i i and i was still at university oh yeah i was only yeah still just starting university at the time and i tried this you know i wanted to do theater always but i ended up doing a science degree for reasons that are too complicated to talk about just now but um I went straight back after seeing that production and tried to change out of my science degree and into theatre and they wouldn't let me. <laughs> so I had to finish the science degree before I could move into theatre. But after that I knew I was going to do it. And of Dice had a company. Then they came back and they did a workshop for a couple of weeks in Derry and um, I was able to do that with them. And... They kind of lived like they had this Id- idyllic way of making theatre where they all lived together in a house up a mountain in Poland. And I thought, this is what I want to do. Of course, completely unrealistic and stupid. But um, it's still half of me still goes, you know, the time you would have the time to make the work, just focusing on the work.
0: When you think about the work and how you immerse yourself or want to immerse yourself in that work, um, an, uh, an actor will talk about sometimes leaving a character behind at the stage door or bringing that character home with them. As a director, do you bring all those characters home with you or do you leave them at the stage door? And what are you like to live with during a production?
1: I don't leave anyone at the stage door and I'm a nightmare. I'm a nightmare to live with when I'm in a production. I'm horrible. I can own it. My husband is an absolute saint to put up with it. And. <laughs> I don't. I do not envy him. I, I know it. I know it and it's, you know, seems sort of, try to kind of acknowledge it so readily and not change it but I can't change it. It's taken my fought very hard to get to be able to work in theatre. It's been a long journey. It's been tough and it means it's, it's the way I have chosen to live my life and It means so much to me. And he's the same. That's, I think, why we're married. He's exactly the same. He writes. So he's also a nightmare to live with when he's writing. So it's sort of fair. (laughs) And to be honest, the hard part of it is we end up apart a lot because I'm a freelancer, so I have to go wherever the job is. And so we're apart far too much, actually. Some would say that's the secret to happy marriage. But, yeah, we're... but i don't yeah i i try and be on my own when i'm in a production because i don't want anyone to know how mad i really am
0: <laughs> <laughs> how do you know when you you get it right you
1: never know you oh, don't really yeah you know when you you know when you get it right in the rehearsal room because you can all feel it and you know when you get a mo- you know you i suppose No, maybe that's not true. I feel like I get it most right when the audience are really silent and leaning into something, then I feel it's right. They want to know more. Um, But I never know if I've got the whole thing right. But what's really extraordinary about this production is I feel like I feel very strongly about this production because I've had the opportunity to use the actors I wanted to use, the designers I wanted to use, the script I wanted to use, a decent budget, a good space. And so I feel like for the first time in a long time, if it rises or falls on my back, do you know what I mean? There's no excuse. If this works, great, I'll be over the moon, but I have no excuses. If it doesn't work, it's down to me. (laughs) <laughs> and that is a terrifying and for that reason I think it means a bit more to me than maybe lots because I can always blame ah, we only had this budget ah, oh, this designer wasn't available and we had to use this one um you know, whatever excuse I'm just pulling things out of the air but you know there's a, you can but I can't I have nothing to blame if it doesn't work
0: Did you feel it I've watched the performance three times now, once in the rehearsal room, once in dress, once with an audience and watching it with an audience. I could feel the audience go with this performance. I could feel them leaning closer Mm -hmm. to hear more. You must have felt that.
1: Um, Yes, the first preview, I think I um, felt it. The second preview I was focusing on things that I was trying to fix technical things, moments that I felt weren't right in the in this right rhythm, and I think I missed the audience reactions because I was doing something technical. It was kind of outside of it, so I wasn't part of the audience. You have to be part of it to feel it, I think. Um, but I I I felt a kind of a support of the story in in the audience at the end, which, which kind of threw me because I was expecting a bit of hostility. And I was really surprised at the warmth of the support of the story. And um, that was at the end. So when I watch the third preview tonight, I'll try and relax a bit more and be with the audience.
0: <laughs> Final question, I'm going to let you go. Um, What do you get from directing and how do you measure success? That's kind of two questions. That was unfair. (laughs) We'll go with it. Um, What do I
1: get? I get from directing. I get to think about the world in a way that is extraordinary and provocative and inspiring through the plays that I get to read and work on. I get to spend my time with the best people in the world because I'm around artistic, creative people all the time. I get to tell stories and have a voice in my community that I wouldn't have because I naturally would avoid saying anything. Um, So I I get an opportunity to express myself through other people's words, I suppose, a bit like the fish. (laughs) Um, Mostly I just get to be around brilliant people who make me think about how I should be in the world every day. And change my opinion on that every second day, and I don't know how to measure success because I haven't had it yet.
0: (laughs) Well, I think it's heading towards you, Katrina McLaughlin. Thank you very much. Thanks, (laughs) Amelia.